The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but man, oh man, do we have a great show lined up for everyone tonight. I'm really excited about tonight's show. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing very well and definitely excited as usual. Quick shout out to everybody tuning in on Ustream, the TuneIn app, and uh, the LiveMe app. Uh, we hope everybody is having a, a great Sunday evening and uh, definitely buckle up, folks, because we have a, uh, like I said at the, at the beginning, a really exciting show. But man, before I continue, I just want to take a quick, a quick moment here because in the last few months, the community of researchers in the fields that we cover has seen some great losses. Jim Mars passed away a while back. John Anthony West, Art Bell, Brad Steger, and most recently, Mr. Adam Parfrey, who we had the honor of interviewing uh, on this show. And one of my all-time favorite topics, Jack Parsons, his publishing house, Feral House Publishing, uh, put out this amazing book called Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons. And uh, as many people know, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by his life. And it was a great privilege to have the opportunity to speak to Mr. Parfrey on a topic that, like I said, has been on my mind for many, many years. Uh, and rest well, Mr. Parfrey, wherever you are, I'm sure you're discovering even greater mysteries where you're at now. Absolutely. And he definitely had a lot of vision when it came to publishing. And if you do look up his bio, you'll see that, not to be redundant, but quite a visionary and his contribution to modern literature has truly been invaluable. Um, he's been touted as the most dangerous publisher in America and his fearlessness has always been and will continue to be inspiring. Absolutely. That being said, we move on to the topic of the night, which honestly, I think a lot of people are going to find extremely, extremely fascinating. We have a qualified guest to discuss some of the subject matter that we will be tackling here tonight. So Genevieve, if you would be so kind to introduce tonight's guest. Brad Olson is the author of nine books thus far, including two of his um, esoteric series, Modern Esoteric and Future Esoteric. An award-winning author, public speaker, radio show host of the Esoteric Circle, book publisher, and even event producer. His keynote presentations and interviews have enlightened audiences at Contact in the Desert, which um, actually is a conference that's coming up and We'll be there. He'll be there. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. But other conferences include the Awareness Life Expo, the 5D events, and dozens of radio shows, including Coast to Coast, Fade to Black, and Ground Zero. And even television shows, including Ancient Aliens and Mysteries of the Outdoors. Brad is a founder and co-producer of How Weird Street Fair. Brad was featured on the front page of San Francisco Bay. Guardian in September 2014, the Chicago Native's Historic Writing 
continues to reach a wide audience while he continues breaking ground in alternative journalism, public speaking, illustration and photography. And with that, we do have the honor of welcoming Brad Olson onto Western Rockies. Mr. Olson, can you hear us all right? Hi, everybody. How's it going? Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show tonight. Your series of books, I believe it, it's going to be a three-volume series. Uh, currently, there's two out. Uh, tackle some very heavy subject matter. So if it's okay with you, we would like to get into some of that tonight, starting with, and if you don't mind me asking, I was reading that you're also a, a travel author. How did you make the switch from that style of writing to, you know, if I may use the word conspiracy, a uh, conspiracy author? Did you have like a matrix red pill moment? <laughs> well, actually I did. I climbed to the top of the Great Pyramid on a full moon in 1993 and had a bit of a spiritual moment up there. Kind of changed my perspective from atheist to believing that uh, we do embody uh, spirits and you have ways to intercede in the other dimensional realms. And that's pretty much my takeaway from travel that got me into these esoteric subjects. Just always a curiosity and a fascination for the paranormal and UFOs and even Bigfoot and cryptozoology, which, by the way, have a lot of parallels with the sacred places that I write about as well. Oftentimes, these sacred places or mountains will have a lot of paranormal activity, UFO sightings, and so forth. So the travel uh, transition into the esoteric, it wasn't a difficult one, but uh, mainly it was because travel as a segment in book publishing has taken quite a beating from the internet. And so about 10 years ago, I had to make a decision if I wanted to stay in this and change my editorial perspective or... Uh, stay in a dying realm. Now, I still do some travel stuff here and there, and I'm about to uh, take off on a trip to South America and possibly Antarctica and then get all seven continents under my belt this winter. At least that's the plan at the moment. That is pretty impressive. From what I've researched, um, you've looked into a lot of spiritual and religious places around the world. Could you give us a couple of top ones that really gave you a vibe of spiritualism? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I guess to do a David Letterman top 10. <laughs> Here in, in uh, North America, you have the uh, mound sites along the Mississippi River Valley and the Ohio River Valley. It's in my book, Sacred Places North America. I'll tell you, some of those sites, when you walk around them, it's about the same sensation you'd get in a, a Mayan city or Machu Picchu or some other places that... At one time, the Cahokia Mounds outside of St. Louis, just over the border in Illinois, not too far from where I grew up and went to college in Illinois, had a larger population a thousand years ago than the city of London. I mean, it was wow. just a metropolis that just spanned up and down the Mississippi River and where the mouth of the Missouri meet. In fact, St. Louis was once called Mound City, and almost all of them have just been plowed over. So there is this... Uh, presence of a place that just makes it so. And if we can just stay in North America, I tell you uh, Mount Shasta is an amazing mountain, uh, one filled with uh, Bigfoot to UFO sightings to underground cities. There's just something about that massive mountain that's just different from the other Cascade Mountains. I think I can relate a little bit with what you're saying about some of these locations. Many, many years ago, I had a chance to travel to uh, 
Teotihuacan and Mexico, where the Sun Pyramid and the Moon Pyramid are. And when I was there, and, and you know, I was, I was a young uh, child back then. And to this day, I still remember that almost like otherworldly feeling when you stand at the top of this pyramid. And it, it's just a completely different vibe. And it sounds very similar to what you describe uh, that you experienced in Egypt, correct? Oh, very correct. And you, you got it. That's the power of the place. Then when you factor in the history and you try to imagine what it would look like so many hundreds or thousands of years when it was a thriving metropolis or when the Great Pyramids had the quartz crystal casing stones on it and just glimmered in the sun, it just can take you back. And that, that's why I say when I had this spiritual moment on the Great Pyramid, realizing that I've had past lives and I've felt like I've been to many of these locations. For example, when I went to Pompeii, Italy, I knew my way around. It was so bizarre and I was I still get goosebumps when I talk about it, but I like, oh, the Colosseum, yeah, up there to the left and to the right. I'd never been there before and I knew my way around. So things like that, just uh, when traveling and these esoteric subjects collide, you often have very interpersonal and very cool experiences. That is really powerful. And a uh, quick shout out again to everyone in the chat room. It looks like we have uh, uh, quite a few fans of yours, uh, Mr. Olson. They have read your book. So uh, I want to let them know if they have any questions, yes. feel free to post them on the chat. We will be happy to relay them to Mr. Olson. Definitely shout out to Arban all the way from the UK listening oh, wow. right now who um, seems to be quite a fan of your world stompers and ah, had no very idea first who one. we're going to be on here. <laughs> <laughs> we're glad that they're getting a chance to join us tonight as Mr. Olson is our guest. Let me ask you this. Early in your book, you and you just referenced Mount Shasta a minute ago. Early in your book, you mentioned that your first, uh, if I remember correctly, your first UFO sighting happened in Crater Lake in Oregon, and it seems like that was a catalyst for uh, a lot of your research. Could you expanding a little bit more on that experience? Absolutely. Uh, I was there in the summer of 97. Two other backpackers saw the exact same thing with me, where with some other people too. Uh, basically, it was a streaking light that lasted for about eight to 10 seconds, just slowly moving across the sky like a bright white laser beam, even though it was still a light out, sun had just gone down and it was aiming towards the depths of the lake. But before it got to uh, where it would cross over into where you see land or down to the lake, it disappeared and it broke off into these perfect square blips for a couple more seconds. And we just fell to the ground laughing, just what was that we just saw? And so we started running up the hill to see if our friends had caught it. And uh, just at that same moment, only a minute or so later, we saw the exact same effect over Mount Shasta. And so that propelled me into a lot of the UFO research. Not only are those two places very sacred places that I write about in my book, but they have this paranormal presence and a reported massive underground base called Telos which, as legend would have it, are actually the survivors of Lemuria, a continent that once existed in the Pacific many, many centuries ago, uh, actually predates Atlantis. And the more you look into this stuff, both sacred places and the esoteric nature of many of these sites around the world, you do start to get a bigger picture that there have been many civilizations that have been on this planet, albeit much smaller populations than we have today. Nonetheless, megalithic 
architecture, sometimes even underwater, and carved at 80, 90 degree angles with steps and terraces, talking about Yoguni in uh, southern Okinawa, Japan, this underwater matrix of uh, carved structure. And things like that just build up to the point where you have to start to accept and see that there are many anomalies around this planet. And that's how I started my book, Modern Esoteric, in the Lifeology section, looking back at all these out-of-place artifacts and megalithic sites around the world that just boggle the imagination how they got there. No, it truly does. You obviously have a lot of knowledge about some of these locations. And through various books and, and more recently through the books of uh, David Politis, I know that Crater Lake and Mount Shasta have become uh, very well known to the people that research the unknown because of a uh, high amount of strangeness. In your opinion, is this the work of these underground bases or this lost civilization that seems to dwell under this area? Well, it would be important to make a distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. In the modern age, in the last 70 years, we have deep underground military bases or dumps. And I have a chapter in my book called Futurist Tarek about the underground bases. The whole chapter is about it. So you have at least 130 in this country alone interconnected with high-speed rail. Now, those are a modern invention. When you talk about telos and what might be underground cities, not only uh, this is the main one here, a legacy base in North America, as well as around Dulce, the Archuleta Mesa, uh, there I could identify at least seven legacy bases around the world. And those bases are more like underground cities where advanced and or extraterrestrial entities reside, pretty much leaving the surface to us humans. Um, but some would say in, in some of the deeper uh, alien exopolitic studies that it is indeed some of these underground races, such as uh, reptilians, who do have a direct hand in the surface dwelling politics and actions. And in fact, it's not always good for the human race to uh, follow these edicts from these other entities. And this is one thing that I'm working on uh, very much to try to help uh, expose and bring forth because the humans absolutely need to be sovereign on this planet and free from these uh, entities and this force. And uh, sometimes by doing these studies, not only in, in looking into sacred places, but certainly uh, studying esoteric su subjects, when you get into the occult, when you get into the invisible masters and the secret chiefs, such as uh, Leo Lyon-Zagami, uh, an author that I published, who CCC Publishing gets into, you start to see that this, this presence has been a force on this planet for a long time. And there's a reason why this is called Earth School or prison planet or the zoo because we don't have control and we do have wardens that uh, kind of keep us under wraps but uh, you know the the once you start peeking outside the cage it's quite fascinating you want to keep going farther out and uh, leave the zoo and and that's kind of what the human experience is uh, starting to experience right now let me ask you this because what you just said it's some very heavy heavy statements and and I definitely want to give people a chance to process it but if I may backtrack a little bit in recent years I've seen the rise of the word esoteric being used a lot more and 
as you point out in your book, it, it seems to, to have somewhat of a negative connotation for a lot of people. However, the way you use the word esoteric and the way you think we should approach these esoteric themes is in a completely different way than what some of the, the more conservative mainstream uh, way of thinking would dictate. Can you tell us your definition of the term esoteric and how that applies to the work that you're doing? Sure. It's just like I produced the How Weird Street Fair. Weird can be a neutral word, a negative word, or a positive word. And I think it's the same with the word esoteric, if you understand what it really means. And what it really means is information that is hoarded by and collected by and uh, even sometimes worshipped by a select few people. Because knowledge is power, and it always has been. And when you have it, it's kind of like owning a lot of jewels or gold. You just want to hoard it and keep it to yourself and maybe just spread it around among your group. And this is the way it's been for centuries in the Western countries. Think about it. We've gone from the pharaonic age where you had a living pharaoh who was a living god, was a man, but was worshipped as a living god. You have the mystery schools that came out of Egypt that influenced the mystery schools of Greece and Roman times. And the Caesar was also a living God. Now you have the Pope in Rome and he has a mouthpiece or an earpiece to, to God in heaven. And it's been this control grid to keep us in the box. Now the word esoteric in, in the way I use it is to talk about all the great mysteries that are out there. And in future esoteric, it's taking it one step further and looking at the ET issue as a whole, as well as what the craft are about, as well as cryptozoology and uh, underground bases, planets on other structures and so forth. So I'm using it, I guess, in, in, in a more liberal term that it's not good, it's not bad, it's not neutral, it's all those. And if you look at the dark side of it, the occult side, I think that's where most people get hung up on the word esoteric. And it has been used for the collection of knowledge in the occult world. And I think that's where it gets somewhat of a bad rap. I'm hoping to make it more of a positive word. What are these uh, secrets or what is this knowledge that these people, I don't know if we can call them uh, elitist or, or the cabal, as many people refer to this group yeah. that holds the knowledge. What is this knowledge that they're hanging on to and, and why don't they want the rest of the world to benefit from it? Well, look, the world can't support everybody being a billionaire. In the capitalistic structure, it just has to be a top select few. And those top select few are the cabal, as you mentioned, in, in times past, the Illuminati. Uh, it has always been around. That's my point. It can be traced all the way back to the pharaohs. Uh, it, in the entire Western civilization structure, you see it all the time. They're there. They're the controllers, and they're holding on to a lot of this information. Well, look, we're living in the time right now. It's the great unveiling. The curtain is being lifted for all to see what is available to see. Now, you don't have to care. You don't really have to buy my book or be interested in any of these subjects I'm writing about. You can play video games all day and just space out and do that. But if you really want to start getting into the meat and potatoes of our real existence, the metaphysics of this planet and the, and the universe and who we really are and what our potential is, and, and I'll tell you, in my book, uh, Modern Esoteric, I give you 
a lot of information to make yourself healthier, wealthier, and wiser. And it'll help you in your life to become familiar with these subjects and use them to better your own life and live longer and be healthier. So it depends on where your perspective is. If you want to go that way and, and understand this stuff, uh, it, it's, it is the matrix red pill scenario. You know, you, you go down the rabbit hole and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes because boy, I'll tell you, it, it appears to me at this point, it goes on and on and on. Something that I find really interesting in, uh, in your book, and we've done a, a lot of shows on the very real uh, possibility that there are other dimensions and planes of existence. And one of the, uh, the things that has uh, kind of picked up steam in the last few years is the use of uh, psychedelics to access other realms, uh, whether it's through DMT or mushrooms or LSD. And a lot of people seem to believe that the pineal gland is the receiver or the, the, that helps us see into these dimensions. However, I found really interesting in your book that you mentioned that, I'm going to quote uh, just to make sure I don't screw this up, the electromagnetic magnificence of our DNA being a spiritual antenna. Uh, and I found yeah. that statement very, very interesting. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. And the pineal gland is a whole chapter in the book, Modern Esoteric Beyond Our Senses. And that is in a section called Control. And this is definitely one of those subjects that has been intentionally withheld from humanity. Why? Because if we were to have a mass awakening and to open our pineal gland, we would start to have incredible powers as human beings. And we would start see, seeing through the lies and the facades and the half-truths and the disinformation and start seeing the world as it really is, like the Robert Blake quote that uh, inspired the band The Doors. Uh, if you cleanse the door, you'll see it. For, oh, I just screwed that up. <laughs> you'll see it for the way it is. Right. But And that's the whole point here. It, and the pineal gland has these amazing properties to open the doors of perception. That's part of the quote. See things as they really are. Uh, and and the pineal gland is basically wired in the same way one of our uh, our eyes are. It has the same uh, circuitry, but it's in a dark space in the middle of our two hemispheres of the brain. And when awakened, it can give us the uh, kundalini experience as described in the East, which is a precursor to becoming enlightened when all of the chakras, your energy body then becomes totally awakened, you will then start to become like a multidimensional entity. And part of that is the awakening and opening of the pineal gland, which in almost all of us is closed and calcified, largely due to heavy doses of fluoride in, in the water, which goes right to the pineal gland and calcifies it and like seals it shut. And apart from our modern government's involvement, why do you think... Um we're not currently enlightened and haven't been in a long time. Why Why do we only use, um, say, 20% of our brain and why are we only a fraction of what we could be? And why is it that when you turn on television, you get nothing but garbage? Why aren't we being taught about the pineal gland and ways to decalcify? And well, Because we live in the zoo. 
because we have keepers that do not want an enlightened race of people. They do not want us all to be billionaires. They want us to be debt slaves and uh, just just pay attention and eat enough bread and go to the circuses and stay uh, entertained the whole time and never really question the authority and and go after the warden of the zoo who's keeping us here. And that is this controlling elite. And they've been with us for a long, long time. And I think right now in our lifetimes, it could be the game over for them. And we might have this great awakening that would lead us into this prophesized golden age when we all start to awaken, when we all start to open our pineal glands and become multidimensional human beings. It would be a wonderful thing to witness in our lifetimes. One of the things that I found interesting while reading your book is that uh, you do incorporate aspects of, I'll use the term spiritualism, but what I mean by that is that you, you take into account our spiritual nature when tackling all these topics. And I'm always a bit weary because, you know, as soon as you start throwing anything spiritual with like aliens and UFOs, you run the risk of ending up like the Raelians or or Heaven's Gate or something like that, you know? So I, I always tread cautiously. However, I do like your approach. Let me ask you this in your work and your research. Is there room for a God? Religion plays a big role in our planet, in our personal lives, social lives, political lives. Everything that happens in the world does have some type of religious uh, undertone to it. How do you factor in the belief of God? A lot of people said, you know, well, we were manipulated by a race of extraterrestrials. And there's people on the other side of the fence that says that we were created by a God. How do you uh, consolidate these ideas? Isn't it interesting that in many prehistoric cultures, when the first white man arrived, they were seen as a God. They were viewed as someone who came in a sailing ship and landed on these shores and they'd never seen anything like that. Wouldn't that be somewhat akin to, say, modern humans seeing a UFO and wondering how they came to our shores? So we're in this infancy stage, really, to try to comprehend many of these uh, larger issues as a collective society or civilization. Keep in mind, we have people in outer space right now. I mean, even the, the alternative regular narrative will tell you, yeah, we got some people up there at the space station and they're Russians and a few other people. And we also have uncontacted tribes in Papua New Guinea that still hunt with bows and arrows and live in the Stone Age. So the human experience is still Stone Age and it's also Space Age. And we're somewhere right in the middle there in the internet age, which if you think about it, 20 years ago, what we have the capability of doing would be mind-blowing if you tried to tell someone what an iPhone could do uh, before they came out. You know, And that's just in our lifetimes. We grew up with uh, landlines, right? Right. Before any of this started coming out. So to try to just think, bring a smartphone to an uncontacted tribe, it would be like an alien coming down with some kind of uh, device that could levitate items. Uh, it would just be mind-blowing. True. So we just have to keep that in mind, that, that the human race is very much in its infancy in starting to comprehend who we are as people, what our potential is, and where we might be able to go with all this into outer space and beyond. And keep in mind, Star Trek was based on Earthlings 350 years from now. So that is supposed to be us. And indeed, the creator of the Star Trek franchise, 
Gene Roddenberry in the late 1950s. He was sitting in on these seances or mediums who are who are communicating with people from our future and this is the future that they were laying down that we could possibly have and things like uh in star trek you'll never see them use money for example it's all everything is free and you ask for a chocolate shake and it'll just come right out uh and that's the way it could be you know and in in future esoteric i have a final section called utopia and I have a chapter called The End of Money. And I want people to just start thinking about ways that we could transcend all the traps here that we're experiencing when we live in the zoo and what life could be once we're out of the cage and really to be sovereign human beings. It's definitely a very uh, promising future that is ahead of us if that's the direction that we can go. Real quick, when you talk about no money, because I can already read the comments on YouTube, when you talk about no money, a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, that sounds like the biblical, uh, you know, prophecy of uh, end times when, you know, we won't need money. Well, have you guys ever heard of the Burning Man Festival? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, you go to Burning Man and it's the gift economy. Mm-hmm. You don't spend money. You just walk around with an empty cup and you walk up to people's bars and it's, uh, it's yeah. a great thing when you just give away uh, what you have. And let's face it, there's a lot of resources on this planet. It's just a distribution problem and a money problem that basically makes people believe that this is the way to get what you really want. But there's a lot of ways to get what you really want. And I, I happen to think that uh, in this Star Trek future, there is going to become a, have to be a time from now until then, if we're going to go to the golden age, if we're going to really live up to our promise as human civilization, not destroy ourselves, that we're going to have to come to this point where we're going to end the money system. And again, I would love to see it in our lifetimes. And if there was a way I could help bring that forth by just getting people to think outside the box here, we don't really need it. I mean, they're already talking about doing this uh, universal fund for everybody, this helicopter fund, $1,000 a month for everybody. Uh, Maybe as soon as the next election, you might start hearing talk about this. Uh, And they're even doing experiments in certain towns like uh, Stockton, California. They're talking about giving everybody a thousand bucks a month just to get people out of poverty. So there are frameworks and concepts of thinking this way. And you're only going to see more of this as time goes on because we see what incredible enslavement tool money has been uh, for centuries. That is very true. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Burner Festivals because I, I literally was going to say that, but I didn't want to throw it quite out there just, just in case. <laughs> I'll be the one that says it. <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant in, you know, at Burner Festivals in general and th- there is no sense of um, this is mine, this is yours. It's just like, oh, you're here, you need food. Well, here's some food. <laughs> That's right. I would like to explore another aspect of your research and thoughts on the human spirit. You mentioned in your book, the fact, really, I can't say it's the theory. It seems quite factual that when we die, our body weighs 22 grams less. And a lot of people have called this the the weight of the spirit or the weight of the soul. Right. And I've always found that really interesting. But I'll be honest, I don't think I've had somebody on the show to go deeper into that. And uh, if you would be so kind, can you explain a little bit more about that? Because I'm sure we all have heard it, but we don't know some of the details behind this 22 grams uh, fact. (laughs) 
Yeah, I've, I got uh, a criticism here and there. People saying, it's not 22 grams, it's 16 grams. Oh, you got it all <laughs> wrong. Or other people saying, no, it's really 30 grams. Okay, maybe it, it's based on our body mass or body weight. Uh, mm -hmm. Children may be lighter than heavy, big adults. But something escapes us uh, at the moment of death. And if you were to use Carillion photography, which can capture the aura of a person, the energy that emits from our body, you'd see that we're really, like the bumper sticker says, more like uh, spirits having the human experience more than humans having a spiritual experience. But we're just not trained that way. We're not in that mindset of looking at things, everything, as having a certain kind of energy or frequency. And indeed, that's what Nikola Tesla said. If you want to understand the mysteries of the universe, think in terms of sound, frequency, and vibration. Uh, and, and this is what it's really all about. So if you were to take a photo of someone on their deathbed, not only would the Carillion photography show you the loss of that light force, but apparently it has a, a, a slight weight in our body. Now, I, how can I explain that? it being mostly of a light body escaping, you would think that it would have no weight. But what I do is I collect data points in my books and I try to find information that I think is not only compelling and interesting, but of this esoteric nature that's been withheld from humanity. By the way, it's been estimated up to 90% of the most important subjects have been withheld from us. So to get into this, that's why I can do a, a three-volume set of these material because there's just so much material to cover. But on the deathbed, to just uh, get back to the, the grams, I think uh, there have been experiments, quite a few, where people are being filmed and watched and monitored at the moment upon death, including being weighed. And they notice at that moment there's something that escapes or something that just leaves us. And it has a quantifiable weight. So, I mean, this is why another reason why I, I, I wrote about reincarnation chapter in Modern Esoteric and, and start to look at this in the larger context of who we are. Because part of the reason we are in the situation we're in, this prison planet construct, is because we have our memories swiped every single lifetime. Come into this not really remembering who we are. And in many ways, we're greatly disadvantaged to others, say, ET races who are very human-like. So not knowing who we are or where we're coming from puts us in this position that we're basically uh, vulnerable to the manipulation, the propaganda, all the mind control techniques from the time we're little kids in schools till we're adults getting it from all different angles, telling us what reality should be. But all the while, the information's right out there, hidden in plain sight in many cases, for people to really discover who they are. And when they do discover that they are these multidimensional energy, basically spirits in a human body experience, it just changes the complete outlook. And that's when you start to escape from the zoo. Because when you realize that we're just occupying these little flesh bag bodies and it's just going to go on and on and on in many lifetimes, you start to lose your fear of death. You start to lose your fear of this opposition that is keeping us in these constraints. And for me personally, I feel a need to get the word out there and try to help people make that transition too. Because it's really going to be a collective effort if we're going to take the human race to, to the next level.
Do you think that the alien UFO phenomena is one step towards that direction? Well, yes, it always has been. But we have to understand there are malevolent ETs and benevolent ones. The malevolent ones are the ones that have been here and have manipulated us for a long time. Uh, some reports that m most of the reptilians have been removed from the planet and therefore now the cabal doesn't have their fourth dimensional backup like they've had for centuries and that's why things are starting to flounder for them. Uh, now they're being exposed in a way they never have been before that uh, the whole matrix that they've set up is starting to unravel and people are starting to see what a, a pack of lies television is and everything they've been telling us. Look, in, in, in the Soviet Union, they all knew they had propaganda with Pravda and all the sources. Right. They come over here, they say, you Americans, you don't even know you're being propagandized. <laughs> and they're right. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that I, I've always heard was that secret societies have had the knowledge of these dimensions and entities from other planets. Is this part of the knowledge that they're hoarding? Correct. Because I know for a lot of people, this sounds a bit out there. I mean, you know, you tell somebody about secret societies that you already get an eye roll and then you throw in aliens and people are like, what is this person talking about? But I feel like nowadays we know a little more. There's been whistleblowers that have come out. but What is the purpose of keeping the, the knowledge away from people? Is it because we're not mentally ready to accept that reality? Well, that's what the elite would like to think, that, that we're just so preoccupied in our ego and uh, short-term gratification that, that we're just like good little animals in a cage. They'll just keep us alive and keep us fed and we'll just keep bleeding like uh, sheep do. But the ones that break out uh, become a threat to them. And they don't want us to know how they control us, how they meet in secret, how they have been hoarding knowledge, and what that knowledge is. See, that's what I find terribly important. And mm -hmm. uh, my friend Jordan Maxwell, he, he's great, a legend in this field. Right. He always says, I'm just an ordinary guy in search of extraordinary subjects. And I would say I'm the same way. It's just uh, the circumstances of traveling around the world and coming into contact with uh, some of this stuff and then now meeting people and even publishing books like Leo's Lion Zagami, his whole Confessions of an Illuminati and seeing the power structure from top to bottom and how they have hoarded this information for so damn long. Uh, it's time to just get it out and, and just expose it. Look, I'm not going to become a Freemason, even though my grandfather was and I could join uh, and you start learning those secrets, I'd like to circumvent them the other way and find out what their top secrets are that would have taken me otherwise a lifetime to learn. And let's face it, a lot of the top diplomats, billionaires, movers and shakers belong to these secret societies, including Freemasonry and the Jesuits and others. It's the empire of three cities. Keep that in mind. In the Western nation, you've got the Vatican, city is controlling the spiritual self. Uh, the city of London controls finance. Washington, D.C. controls the military and war. And all three of them have an obelisk, an Egyptian obelisk, right in the center in all three of those places. And they're all three independent city-states so they can operate independently of the nations where they reside. And this is where the cabal works from. This is their base. This is how they want to try to control the world. And every one of them is a member of 
these secret societies. Now, some of them go by the name of the Bilderberger Group, Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, these think tanks that control the government. They are not elected officials, but they influence dialogue and policy in different Western countries. Wow, that's really mind-blowing when you kind of lay it out like that. Is the reason why there's an Egyptian obelisk because they feel that Egypt holds some type of key? Is that where they get the knowledge? Um, could Go I ahead. also add, sure. um, this is just coming from people in the chat room, and you know they're interested in all different aspects of what you think. Um, uh. This happens to be related. Someone did just ask um, what you, um, your beliefs are about the various, I guess, hidden knowledges of the ancient Egyptians or maybe even pre-Egyptian times to, in terms of what we see them as. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, like I said earlier in the show, the Pharaoh was a living God. The Egyptians had their mystery schools. The priests of Amman were very powerful for many centuries and built many of the great uh, Egyptian antiquities we see. Fast forward today, that mindset has not changed. If they feel they are of the elite, and look, we can get into how there are hybrids as well on this planet, how some of the hybrids may also be these RH negative blood types, uh, maybe have more conical like bigger heads than a normal human, uh, may have taken over the banking system for their own benefit and, and have the rest of us basically enslaved in this money system. Wow. It's definitely something that I hope people are really, really uh, taking to heart here because, it, you know, this is my personal opinion here before we go to break that I believe the, the slogan of the Illuminati, if I may say so myself, uh, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's something like a order out of chaos. And I definitely get the sense that we are at that chaos stage right now as part of this uh, plan to implement some type of order. And like you say, if we don't free ourselves from this matrix, our future looks very bleak. Plan to stay in the, the zoo, folks. If we don't free <laughs> ourselves now, this is the greatest opportunity we've ever had. And we got to do it together. Absolutely. Mr. Olson, if you would be so kind to wait on the line, we're going to take a quick top of the hour break and uh, run some station IDs and a couple of songs. And when we come back, I want to get into more recent UFO events and how this stuff kind of plays out or will play out eventually, uh, and what lessons from the past can we draw upon from? So would you be cool just waiting on the line for a few minutes? Not a problem. Awesome. And man, this is, uh, I'm literally, I think I'm going to have to go turn the AC in a minute because this, this is some heavy stuff. It really gets me thinking. It really, it preoccupies me while at the same time giving me hope. It's this roller coaster ride, and I hope people are enjoying the conversation so far. Our guest tonight is uh, Brad Olson. If you have any questions, feel free to post them in the chat. I know Genevieve is keeping an eye on that, and uh, we'll be sure to relay the questions to Mr. Olson. We're going to go out with, uh, let's see, we're going to go to break well, with... we're not going to go out. No, we're not. That's right. <laughs> we're going to go to break with, uh, you know, I've been on a bit of an Aerosmith kick lately. So we're going to play a little bit of Aerosmith. This song's called Amazing. We're coming right back in just a few minutes. Uh, this is West of the Rockies with our guest, Brad Olson. Stick around. We'll be right back. West of the Rockies with Frank. Open, 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 yo. 
and we're back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but man, we here we're enjoying a, a, a really um, mind blowing, mind expanding, if I may, mm-hmm. show tonight. Some back announcing you just heard that was this Schwala uh, with the song "Counting Blue Cars." If anybody remembers that video, it was actually shot right outside downtown LA for the locals, right by the entrance of the 110 freeway. Uh, there used to be this little community of igloo-looking houses there, which made for a, a really cool setting for the video. And I just remember that, so I decided to play that because, well, just as good as Thomas any, I guess. <laughs> and <laughs> before that, you hear Aerosmith with a live version of uh, one of my favorite songs called Amazing. And if you listen to actually to the studio version, it ends with something really interesting. Uh, uh, it ends with the quote, the light at the end of the tunnel may be you. And that left me thinking for a long time. I haven't heard that song in ages up until a few weeks ago. And I remember oh. like, huh, that, that that's struck, nice. no that's pun. Nice. Yeah, that that's struck a chord in me. Meaningful, definitely. Yeah. In, in a certain type of way. So I thought it was a good time to play that song. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. And don't forget to visit the website, WOTRradio.com, where you will find this interview amongst uh, a plethora of others. We just posted actually a really interesting, uh, not a radio interview, this was a video interview that we did with the amazing artist, uh, James Picard, whose documentary is being shown in Cannes Film Festival Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, this week. So we wish them the best of luck. Go check it out if you want to learn uh, of this incredible artist. And you can also go to the website and find a recent interview that we did with Billy Carson from the Gaia show Secret Space. And uh, we talked some really cool stuff and uh, keep a lookout for an interview with Dr. Robert Schock. And we discussed the mysteries of the Sphinx. So a lot of stuff coming up. Bookmark it, follow it, do whatever you need to do to stay on top of uh, all the cool stuff that's going to be coming on there. Uh, so always, I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Uh, and you can catch here uh, doing her very own show, No Out of Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more that goes down Thursday nights, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time. Our guest tonight is Mr. Brad Olson, author, researcher, and I'm going to bring him back on the line so he can tell us where we can find him on social media, his websites, where we can get his books and uh, all that good stuff. So, uh, Mr. Olson, why don't you tell folks where can they go to learn more about you? Sure. Yeah. To learn more about me, bradolson.com. That's B-R-A-D-O-L-S-E-N, one word.com. And then CCC Publishing, 3Cs Publishing, one word.com to check out all the books that I write and uh, also publish different authors, uh, half a dozen different authors. Uh, my publishing business I've been doing for about 25 years out of San Francisco and uh, How Weird Street Fair, which was just last Sunday, a week ago, putting that to bed for another year. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just had our 19th annual in downtown San Francisco and that was a big hit. Uh, and now I'm going to start speaking on uh, the conference tour this time. Next weekend, I'll be in Orlando, Florida, the Consciousness 2.0 uh, three weeks from now at Contact in the Desert, which I'm giving a workshop, a presentation, and on the UFO panel with Jimmy Church. And then uh, another four conferences in September and October. So I uh, got my uh, 
got my work cut out for me, but it's all good. I love what I do. Um, my book, Future Esoteric, Modern Esoteric, you can find it on cccpublishing.com, amazon.com, any bookstore or ask for it by name, they can order it for you. I've got a big distributor in Chicago. It's got all the books in their warehouse and they'll get them out. And uh, also my YouTube channel is called Esoteric Series. And you can also find Facebook pages, Esoteric Book Series, CCC Publishing, and Sacred Places 108 Destinations on Facebook. That's great. And uh, I know I was kind of peeking uh, at the chat room throughout the show, and I could see some questions scrolling by. And I believe, Genevieve, you managed to, uh, to curate some of those and have them ready for Mr. Olson, I believe. Yes. So, I mean, um, these were gathered over the last hour or so. So um, there's a few random ones and I've picked out about three of them. So one of them was from Arwen who is still listening all the way from London. At a little past his bedtime, 4. right? 15, who has, to be, <laughs> who has to be out of the house at 7 a.m. <laughs> Asking about your writings. Um, do you kind of experience and live the story of the characters and of the, I guess, the travels of your writings? Well, they're not fiction and they're not uh, travel logs so much as just uh, information on different locations. Whereas my first book, World Stompers, which he may be the one who referenced, is a book on how people can execute their own trip around the world, which I did for three years, self-financed, and gave me this incredible world perspective that I took back and started... Uh, the CCC Warehouse in San Francisco, which became the How Weird Street Fair, and CCC Publishing, which I still work on uh, to this day. And so how do I put myself in the picture? I, I try to actually remove myself from the picture. It's really not about me. It's about the locations in the Sacred Places books, or it's about these esoteric subjects. And I hope I'm just an objective reporter giving an overview of what the whole thing is. And I also forgot to say, I also do a radio show on Revolution Radio and Late Night in the Midlands called The Esoteric Circle. And I'm reading the chapters from Future Esoteric. So it's every Wednesday, 3 to 6 Pacific time. And I'll be doing The Shadow Government this Wednesday. Oh, wow. Reading the chapter, oh, which will become amazing. a chapter for the audiobook. Followed by discussion, chat room, and sometimes uh, a guest will come on and talk about it with me. That's super cool. Oh, that's great. I think people would definitely be looking out for that. Um, next up, um, just very quickly, um, we have Sal from San Diego. And um, he'd love to know your opinion about, if you do have one, about the goals, specifically 21 goals of the Illuminati, and he's also asking about the committee of 300 and the silent wars going on. Um, and, you know, diving furthermore into that, uh, the idea of the elite and the Rockefellers and families such as that. Sure. I know about all those. Being a secret society, they have different regulations that they insist that the members abide by and some of these goals go along with uh, some of their ambitions in business and finance and world control and other things like that that they want to basically keep to themselves so I, I can't really quote any of the 21 goals themselves but then he also mentioned the council on 300 and basically 
if you look at society, the way it's been structured ever since the pharaohs in Egypt, all the way through Greece and Rome, and up to the modern Western countries we see today, everything is based on a hierarchy, okay? And we're very much at the bottom of that pyramid of that hierarchy. Whereas uh, I mentioned earlier, Illuminati families, uh, these bloodline families, as well as the Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg Group, uh, Council on Foreign Relations. So they're sort of on the upper tier. Right above them is the Council of 300. And those are just 300 members, and it's basically a uh, royal family type of initiative. Mainly the, the British royal family is uh, in charge of it, and the other uh, subordinates that uh, they bring to the table, uh, which also have tentacles out to these other groups I just mentioned. And they basically uh, set the agendas. Many times you'll have something like the Davos Conference um, or some of these, uh, the Bilderberger Conference. And then right after that, a week later is the G12 Conference. And then they go public with all the things that they've decided. But what happens behind closed doors by unelected officials that set policy that then become laws in the various Western countries is basically a form of fascism. I call it neo-fascism, and I'm going to have a section in my next uh, esoteric book on this subject because we absolutely have to realize that this moneyed elite has basically hijacked our democracy system of having our elected leaders make the laws and the decisions land. Well, there's a layer on top. There's a hierarchy above, and there are puppet masters who pull the strings. Those strings are called money and campaign contributions and different ways that they can blackmail or get uh, these politicians under their control. And this is what uh, we have to understand is going so wrong with the world today. And once it's exposed, uh, they're like cockroaches in the light. They just scurry and try to hide. But uh, soon there will be no hiding once uh, the depravity of their crimes is fully exposed. What was the third part of the question? I got to Council on 300. Didn't he ask one more thing? Yes, it was basically about the elite families that seem to rule yeah. the world. Well, these would be what we call the bloodline families, and they're called bloodline for a reason, uh, that they think of themselves as having a different kind of blood than the rest of us. Well, indeed, they do, and it's the RH negative factor. This is in a chapter in Modern Esoteric called Blood of the Gods, where I break it down. And basically, these families can also be ordinary people. In fact, my family is also RH negative. And they, some people say this is like the alien lineage. This is uh, what makes us have a connection with our space brothers. Why it's so mind-blowing is this. RH negative is, RH stands for rhesus, the rhesus monkey, which is basically 85% of us have RH positive blood. That means what happened through evolution and coming up through the species and having eight blood, uh, it should be in 100% of us, but 15% do not have it, do not have a connection with the great apes of this planet. And this is why this subject is so uh, glossed over and nobody really understands it fully. But people who have RH negative blood are indeed more psychic. They have more uh, of these abilities such as sometimes even telekinesis, 
telepathy. Uh, most are psychics. Uh, they basically have things that other humans don't have, and that's what makes them special. But here's the kicker of it all, and this actually happened in my own family, that a mother who is RH negative, like my grandma was, married a man who was RH positive. They had a child whose blood was RH positive. It was infected by my grandmother and in fact killed her own offspring when that blood met. Now, here's the thing. No other animals do that. No other animals can have sex, have a baby, and the mother can kill its own offspring because of incompatible blood. That's what makes the RH thing so fascinating, is that indeed it does appear that we have some long lineage with species that did not have anything to do with evolving from the apes. And I remember reading something that, uh, along the lines that the highest concentration of uh, people with this RH negative blood is, uh, I believe, in the border of, uh, of southern Spain, north of France, I believe, like in the Basque country. Yep. Is that correct? That's correct. That's about 25% uh, are RH negative. There's also in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, where you have blonde hair and blue-eyed people living in Morocco, North Africa, wow. is also this high concentration. And by the way, these lineages, and I'll just use uh, the Basque as an example, have a language that traces to no other language. Right. It's completely unique on its own. It's close. The closest relatives to the Basque people are the ancient Celts who lived up in Ireland and the British Isles. And they, too, have high incidence of Rh-negative blood. Mind-blowing. And we did have one question, again, from earlier on. This from um, Rodion Sushin. And it's slightly more generic, but he's asking about aliens and what their gender is. Are they preparing for an invasion? Do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> well, remember what... Uh, Werner von Braun, the great uh, paperclip Nazi, said to uh, his assistant, Carol Rosen, Carol, the last card they will play is the alien invasion. We have to be aware of it. That will be the biggest last false flag they have. So any talk of alien invasion, I would just see be very, very dubious of such claims. Now, look, holographic technology is magnificently advanced. They could fake an alien invasion and show us ships in the sky and perhaps some fighting between them and this and that, maybe it will appear very real or maybe even the Messiah is going to appear in the sky and trumpets are going to blast. Let me just tell you right now, it's fake. <laughs> it's going to be hoax. It's going to be a way that they wanted, this is like the final thing to bring in the new world order, to, to bring in this totalitarian state to truly enslave us all. And we have to obviously be very uh, weary of such claims, as fantastic as it may seem. Now, look, we've known about ETs for a long time. And if you listen to the uh, bumpers of the Esoteric Series, my radio show, I use a lot of clips from William Cooper. And he had this fantastic talk at the UFO Congress in 1989. You can still watch a real grainy video of it, but the audio is great on YouTube. And uh, some of the quotes he said, and he was basically, I'm coming out of naval intelligence. I'm just doing this data drop. And then you do it, what you can. And I might not even walk out of this hall alive. 
And this was the UFO material that was presented in the book. Uh, Nothing in this book is true, but it's exactly how things are. And it was really a watershed moment in UFOlogy history. Some of the things he said, like, you put the aliens in the middle of this stuff and you get all the answers. (laughs) But the most profound one he said, and I often quote this, it was learned and is now known that aliens have been manipulating human society through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion for thousands of years. And if you just keep thinking about those five, all that we've been talking about here tonight, you start to see the control matrix and you start to see that there is an ET, a malevolent ET element in all this. As fantastic as this all sounds, we just have to be open-minded to the idea that, look, we live in a vastly expansive universe and the potential for ET species coming here and staying here is actually very great. And the fact that they would want to rule over us would also make sense that uh, they looked at us like primitive beings and uh, almost like a sheep herder would look at its flock, that uh, he's the herder and they're the sheep and he keeps them under control and keeps them fed and keeps them alive. And then they serve their purpose to the master down the line. Very true. And uh, and two quick things. I've had a few red pill moments in my life and, and reading uh, Behold the Pale Horse by William Cooper was definitely one of them. Uh, oh, yeah. I know a lot of people, you know, have uh, polarizing opinions when it comes to uh, Mr. Cooper. However, there's some very, very valuable information in, in that book in particular. So if people haven't read that, definitely encourage people to pick that up. Number two, I must say, I really love your impersonation of Werner Baum Brown. I was expecting that. <laughs> And I'll be back in there at the end or something. But, uh, you know, let's get into that really quick because I know that, that people... Sorry, you, is there a question? It's, oh, it's, it's my fine. apologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, quick shout outs to the folks listening. My apologies, I was rude. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did have some shout outs to put out there. And thank you for everyone joining in and asking questions and interacting. The main people that I've seen coming up over and over again are... Um, Tony Chalk, Legit Litty, um, Amian, da- Devil Spawn Channel, Chanel Number Four, Rodion Sushin, Epic Dark, Evil Live, Matteo, Tolas Joe, Saint Louis, and Enox. And yes, they are all very interesting names, but believe you me. Quick shout out to everybody listening through the live stream app, tune in, and you stream. Uh, if you're catching the podcast version of this show, hello to you. I hope uh, everybody's doing well. Now, Mr. Olson, I was going to say, since you know, we're talking about Werner Baum Brown, why don't we go down this path and bring this UFO topic into the 20th and 21st century? There's always been a lot of speculation and theories and ideas that fly around the issue of just how involved was uh, World War II Germany in secret space programs, possibly even having contact with beings or entities from another planet or another dimension. And uh, it's, it's no secret that Hitler had an affinity for uh, secret societies and to a certain degree, the occult. Why don't we start with that? Was there sure. a secret space program going on in Nazi Germany? And where were they getting this knowledge, this technology? It's a great question. I have a whole chapter in Future Esoteric called The Fourth Reich in America, and I trace it back 
to uh, post-World War One, in a Bavarian hunting lodge, there were several German psychic women who grew their hair very long because they felt like it would assist them in being psychic. And they were channeling the star system Aldebaran, uh, including a woman named Maria Orsic. And she was basically so talented, she could visualize three-dimensional telepathic communications in such a way that she could start charting it out and laying out blueprints and basically start to articulate some of these plans that were being sent over in the uh, 1920s. And this was called the Vril Society, V-R-I-L. And in fact, the word Vril is also what they would use for this this cosmic energy, they called it, this this, uh, way that you could entrain the energy of the universe and basically use it into free energy devices. And in fact, some of the plans that Maria Orsic and the Vril Society were uncovering were free energy devices as well as anti-gravity devices. Well, it didn't take long until the uh, occult movement that Adolf Hitler and Himmler and other top uh, Nazis were involved with called the Thule Society got wind of what the Vril were up to and then absorbed them into their group. And at that point, started working on some of these super secret weapons that the Allies were terrified of till the very end of World War II, that they might unleash something of spectacular uh, destruction against the Allies. Fortunately, that never came about, but uh, what they were working on was certainly uh, anti-gravity. And let's not forget that the Nazis had a very famous UFO crash in the Black Forest in the 1930s. And after they became allied with Mussolini in the Axis uh, in Europe, they also recovered a crashed disc in Italy that was in far better shape than the one in the Black Forest. All of this technology went to an area, which is now in uh, today Czech Republic, to an area called the Skoda Works. And that's where they were backward engineering their technology. Much in the same way, We've been doing that at Area 51 in the post-World War II era. Well, you see, the Third Reich never surrendered after World War II. Only Germany surrendered after World War II. And we can trace uh, many escaped Nazis to South America. In fact, one of the things I want to do when I'm down there uh, next year is start to trace some of the, uh, on the path of, the Fourth Reich in South America. And uh, there's a place down there called uh, San Carlos de Bariloche, which is where supposedly even Hitler lived out the remaining years of his life. Died sometime in the early 1960s. In fact, there's leaked, well, not, not even leaked anymore. They're on the FBI website called The Vault that you can look it up and find documents that show that they knew Hitler escaped. But you see, who also escaped was the number two guy named Herman Bormann. And Bormann was the money man. Okay, so they got the loot out of Germany and then they started investing in companies. This is where this whole 
concept of neo-fascism arise. This is when the corporations take over the government. You see, because in the textbooks, we learn Mussolini and Hitler, they were fascists, but they were government taking over corporations. Now it's the other way around. Now we actually have a bigger beast on our hands because it's such a nebulous entity and these people mostly work behind closed doors and we don't know what uh, their real motives are. And this all ties in to the Nazis, this whole Fourth Reich in America, not just in the USA with the paperclip Nazis that came over, but South America too, as well as Antarctica and the base they had down there called Base 322 or New Berlin, where much of the UFO technology from the Skoda works was shepherded out in 1944, early 45, when it looked like uh, the war was going to be lost. And in fact, when Admiral Byrd went down there in a very much a military expedition in the winter of 46, 47, he was met with an incredible force, including a disc that came out of the sea and sunk one of the ships in the Armada called the USS Murdoch. Be great to do an exploration uh, down to the bottom and find that out. Uh, and this was all. This all came out during the Soviet era. You know, if you had a lot of money, right in 1989, when the when the Berlin Wall came down, between 89 and 91, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed, you could walk in there with hard currency, Moscow, and find someone who would bring you out anything you wanted from the KGB files. So, in a way. Glasnost and this whole breakdown of the Eastern Bloc, especially the Soviet Union, was a treasure trove of documents on the UFO scene in the early 1990s. And this includes alien autopsy videos, uh, videos of crashed disks that were recovered by Soviet scientists and military, as well as all this information about the Fourth Reich, because they were spying on Germany as well, and were tracking his uh, the whereabouts of some of these top Nazi leaders, as well as where this high information and technology went. And a lot of it went to Antarctica, with possibly a lot of of the stolen artwork of Europe that has never been found, including the real Spear of Destiny, which Hitler thought if he owned, nobody could uh, defeat him. And that was the spear that uh, stabbed Jesus on the cross. And Hitler believed he had it, and it may be in Antarctica to this day. Honestly, again, like I said, once you start going down this path, you know, <laughs> things get, get really, really interesting. I wasn't sure whether that was quite covered, but do you have an opinion about Hitler himself and whether he actually died like the history books tell us or whether he he ventured on? <laughs> yeah, I think he made it out to uh, South America. Mm -hmm. There's even photos of him, uh, very dead ringer photos without the mustache as an old man lost his hair and uh, yeah, he lived in the... Uh, the Alps of the Andes down in uh, Argentina, Chile. Keep in mind that in um, when Pinochet was uh, the dictator that was brought to office, you know, the CIA deposed a democratically elected government in Argentina in order to keep a dictator in. And a lot of people theorize the reason why is because of the influence of some of the uh, top Nazis that had escaped there and were still living there. You just literally 
hit me with that one out of left field. I had not um, explored that possibility. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of South American uh, history. And yeah, the, the overthrow of Salvador Allende was definitely one of the big uh, events down there. And I honestly, I had never considered that that, that possibility. It's, it's really, you have given me something to think about for a while here. <laughs> now, cool. we know that the Nazis were developing some very advanced aircraft. And uh, some people, myself included, believe that the quote-unquote first uh, UFO sightings uh, that was reported by, um, I believe it was Kenneth Arnold, the name, up in, in Washington State, where he saw this one-wing uh, group of craft flying that looks eerily similar to a project that the Nazis had, lets us know that there were some little-known craft up in the air at the time. Can we say that these were all German secret projects or are these alien craft? Well, I like the way that the Air Force defines it. Uh, not only do they say, is it one of ours or one of theirs, theirs being the aliens, but they actually have a term for it. Our planes are so slow, they call them slow walkers. Any UFO craft, the nickname is Fast Walker. And I think what uh, Kenneth Arnold was tracking over the Cascade Mountains were indeed UFOs uh, because the way they behaved and the supersonic speed. Now, keep in mind when Admiral Byrd made his first interview coming back from Operation High Jump, he reported that the enemy they encountered had craft that could fly from pole to pole in one day. We still don't have conventional aircraft that can do that. And that was in 1946, 47. So, and what's so interesting about this time frame, and I've often thought uh, a UFO biography in the year 1947 would be so interesting because so many things happened, including just shortly after Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting in 47, you have the Roswell incident, which had hundreds of eyewitnesses because at first, the army base there didn't even want to come out and get it. And then finally they realized they had to. That's why uh, Philip Corso, Colonel Corso, wrote the book The Day After Roswell uh, because everything changed right after that. Then you have the, the national security state coming in. The, the NSA and the uh, CIA were both formed uh, in 47. Uh, and that's when Harry Truman let it get out of control. That's when the secret government was able to get this information, get this high technology, start the backward engineering programs, calling it a national security uh, reasons for secrecy and keeping the whole thing bottled up and compartmentalized in such a way that you never get the complete picture. No one bureaucrat knows it all. Only the MJ-12 group, the study group that was put in charge at that time in 1947, uh, such a pivotal year when everything changed in this country as well as uh, the outward knowledge of UFOs and ETs here on this planet. It's really interesting how the moment, you know, and as you quoted with uh, William Cooper, yeah, it's like as soon as you kind of add to this whole alien UFO Thing to the conversation, a lot of things do kind of start making sense. Now, let me skip a, a few decades and let me ask you about the discovery, I'll say the discovery, of uh, 
Gary McKinnon, because I feel like that was a, a big push when the research and discussion of UFO had gotten a bit stagnant, in my humble opinion. Here comes Gary McKinnon with, with these amazing declarations of what he found when hacking into uh, U.S. government computers. Do you think that what he found was credible information? Do you think he himself is credible? Yeah, I do. And the reason why is because the U.S. government thinks he's credible and have been trying to extradite him since the year 2000 when he was first discovered as hacking into the Johnson Space Center in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. He got, I believe he got into uh, Building 6 computers. And he basically just stumbled upon this stuff. His, his motives, he said, was benign, that he wanted to discover free energy technology because so many pensioners in, in the UK were going without heat in the winter. And he felt that uh, if, if he could somehow unbottle this technology, this could help him out. And, you know, Gary McKenna, he's got Asperger's syndrome. I've seen many interviews with him. I haven't met him yet. He can't leave the UK, by the way. He would get picked up and sent here and basically... Uh, uh, put away <laughs> probably for a long time. And that's why he has so much credibility. Look, if he didn't do anything, if he didn't see anything, if he's not believable, well, why is the U.S. government after him in such a heavy-handed way? And it wasn't until the home minister just a few years ago said, well, we're not going to extradite him, but he can't leave the country. Uh, you know, so he basically created his own prison in, in the U.K. that he can't leave. And uh, that should be a very telling sign that he is telling the truth. And so what he reported on was finding some Excel spreadsheets, quite ordinary. But uh, they were talking about ship-to-ship -ship transfers. They were talking about uh, ships that didn't have the USS distinction, U United States ship, but USSS. United States, presumably, spaceship. And they were named after two of the original generals on MJ-12, Roscoe Hillencotter and uh, LeMay. It was the USSS LeMay, USSS Hillentalker, which are presumed to be these uh, triangular craft, uh, anti-gravity craft that can come and go out of... Uh, Area 51, as well as the Dugway Proving Grounds, which is like the new Area 51 in Utah. Uh, and we have other facilities in very far away places like Alaska and uh, remote islands if they needed to uh, bring these craft down and not be seen by anyone. So indeed, there is a secret space program. It's been going on for decades. And it's just a, a, a ruse that we think that, oh, geez, we don't have the space shuttle anymore. How are we going to get into space? Uh, yeah, we can get into space pretty easily. But the problem is there's like a quarantine on the planet right now. And therefore, uh, our pilots are also not quite prepared yet to go fully deep space way, way out there. And I was reading this great article in, in Nexus magazine from this whistleblower who came out of the secret space program. And he said one of the biggest blocks that they're having, and this was about a decade ago, so maybe they've overcome it. But basically, the pilots that come out of Navy that go into a lot of these experimental programs, they're just like jarhead military guys. And they get into um, some of these crafts that have been backward engineered that could basically go interdimensionally. And see, the problem is when you get into uh, the fourth dimension, when you get a craft up to nine-tenths the speed of light, you basically enter into the next dimensional plane. And none of these guys had been trained for that. 
And what they were coming back and saying is, you have to be like of a Buddha nature to do it. Not a jarhead who's been trained to shoot M16s. You have to be one that can leave the body consciously while piloting the flight. And this is one thing that they were having a hard time getting these guys to be able to do. So there's big challenges for us to uh, enter this Star Trek-like scenario where we're just out there exploring the universe. Sorry, I, I was literally uh, blown away by, by that. It's interesting you mentioned that because when people go into high-stress battle scenarios, they do talk about uh, essentially zoning out and entering a different headspace. And maybe it's about directing that headspace in the right direction. You can either just completely zone out and not really enter the right realm, or you can direct it into a kind of uh, positive space. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, I was just going to say, it also reminds me of what you said in your book. When we detach ourselves from our bodies, we become completely objective. And we come to know the essence of ourselves. And it sounds like this type of traveling, it has to be an egoless journey, if I may. Yes. And that's what the jarheads couldn't do. Wow. And they had to come back and rethink what a pilot is. In my chapter uh, called To Fly UFO and Future Esoteric, I basically find that uh, what the craft are made of and what the chairs are made of is of an organic nature. So that the suit the pilot is wearing, including the headband, including his hands on a console, are one with the craft. So he is piloting it with their mind. And this was really confusing to the early scientists who were trying to do backward engineering because they didn't see uh, display panels or even windows where a pilot could fly. Think about that. No right. windows. They are piloting it with their mind. And this is a very difficult thing for our scientists to wrap their head around, including these uh, headbands that they would wear, which would basically make their mental transmissions of how to fly these craft interdimensionally and also alter the gravity around the craft. Many people who say they see a, a UFO coming in for a landing, it's almost like a falling leaf. And they're creating the gravity surrounding the craft. So when they go shoot straight up, basically they're falling into a gravity pit straight up because they've created that. And that's how they're basically also able to travel through space and time and time factors into it. And I have a chapter in Future Esoteric called Space and Time that bring out some of the leading theories on how even time travel can be done. And in fact, to go back to the Nazis, they were working on a craft called Die Glock, which they called the Bell. And it was more of a time travel device than a spaceship, although it could achieve both. And that just went totally missing at the end of the war. Nobody ever saw the die Glock again, unless you consider that some people uh, in, what was it, somewhere in, in like the northeastern United States, uh, exactly 40 years to the day after World War II when supposedly the craft went missing. I mean, this is, I, I can't verify this. this, is just one story I've read that it turned up somewhere, I think in Ohio, Die Glock did with these Nazi scientists wow. that came on it. 
but uh, they were able to get intercepted right away, and then it got covered up straight away too, and then nobody's heard of the Diglock since. But I know author Joseph Farrell, and he writes uh, quite extensively on this stuff, and uh, we've had some great discussions. And he, he's super into uh, German technology. In fact, he wrote a book saying that the Roswell crash was actually backward-engineered German craft. Um, I find that a little bit of a stretch. Right. Uh, I think the data points say that it certainly was an ET craft that actually collided. There were two crafts that went down in Roswell. Another one took a couple of years before it was recovered. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it crashed in a really remote region of New Mexico. Mr. Olson, we're pretty much out of time, and I hope my last question is not too uh, heavy or complex here, but I, I wanted to make sure I got this in before we ran out of time. And that is the issue that, uh, as many people will remember, back in December of 2017, it became big news that the U.S. had indeed been carrying out an investigation into UFO sightings, and they released a clip of uh, some uh, Air Force pilots uh, watching this craft flying up there and, and behaving in, in a way that most conventional aircraft couldn't do. And something that I really found interesting in your book is that you mentioned that Julian Assange, the, 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 the founder of WikiLeaks, he possibly could be holding on to some very crucial information and part of the reason why governments like the UK government are releasing information is because they know that this individual, you know, not to sound redundant, but has this information and could be planning or could be in a position to release this information if some harm or, or something like that came to him. Can you tell me about that as we end the show? Well, sure, if you realize how much uh, information WikiLeaks has been privy to and working with many of these uh, high-level whistleblowers, from Edward Snowden to Bradley Manning. Uh, I even think maybe uh, Gary McKinnon may, although he says he didn't collect anything or keep anything, he may have uh, also given this some of these documents to... Julian Assange, who basically has said that if he's ever assassinated, it will unleak uh, a code which will release all the documents pertaining to the secret space program. And that is indeed his uh, life insurance policy. And he's come out and said it that he has the goods on the secret space program. And even if he stays alive, there will come a day when he releases it. But I'll tell you, this is one of the, what they call the core secrets. And especially for a civilian like Assange to have these top secrets, they have, I'm sure in uh, no unveiled way told him you release it. And I guarantee you, you'll be dead in 24 hours. They'll just storm the Ecuadorian embassy and get him. So he probably is just sitting on him and saying, okay, look, you kill me and it releases, or I'll just sit on him for a while. And there may become a time when, uh, it's okay to do so. I hope so. I hope we see that in our lifetime too. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, there are a lot of people in the chat that really would like to know your opinion about various topics. And one topic that has come up is black goo or is black liquid, as some people know it as. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Oh, sure do. And uh, if I have a chance, maybe I'm going to try to get to the Falklands this winter oh, where wow. it is supposed to be uh, uh, a place where it comes out of the earth organically. But it has a consciousness is what's so strange about it. And I'm going to include this in my third and final book called Beyond Esoteric, The Ultimate Journey. And I know we're running out of time, so I may not be able to get into uh, too much about the Black Coup, but an utterly fascinating subject to be sure. Well, Mr. Olson, if you're open to it, we would love to have you on the show in the in the future to keep discussing a lot of this stuff. Uh, you're like the esoteric Carmen San Diego. It's like you're just everywhere in the world. And it's really great that you get a chance to investigate this stuff and then share it with the rest of us through your books. And we honestly are quite humble that you took the time to be on our show tonight and share this information. Before you go one more time, could you tell people where... They can find more information about you and order your books and all that good stuff. Sure. Find out more about me, bradolson.com. Find out more about my books and how to order them and get signed copies, cccpublishing.com. And hey, come and meet me in person. I'm a people person. I love meeting people who have read my books or listened to interviews. And come and meet me at Contact in the Desert or if you're in uh, the Orlando area this weekend at Consciousness 2.0 or at the 5D events in Los Angeles. I'll be down there in uh, August and also Denver and uh, New Mexico. So bunch of uh, dates coming up. They're all on my website, bradolson.com. You want to come to one of the conferences and pick up a book there? That's also great. Very cool. And actually, we will be in attendance at Contact and Desert. <laughs> so we, uh, we look forward to saying hello to you. I know you'll be busy with your presentations, but hopefully we can get a quick second to say hello and catch up on some stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah, catch my talks. And then I'm usually hanging out at my uh, table between uh, speaking gigs at Contact in the Desert. So I'll be there the whole time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mr. Olson. We really appreciate you taking the time and we hope you have a, a great rest of your night. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. And yeah, for sure. Let's do it again sometime. Awesome. We would love to. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Mr. Brad Olson, author and researcher extraordinaire. I mean, honestly, he's like, he's almost like an Indiana Jones, uh, just traveling across the globe and uh, researching these very, very, very fascinating topics. As he mentioned, don't forget to check out his website, Brad Olson, that's B-R-A-D-O-L-S-E-N.com. And there you can find info on how to get his books, his talks, and all that good stuff. I highly, highly recommend it. He was kind enough to send us a copy of his book, Feature Esoteric, which is the basis for tonight's interview. And as you could tell, he covered a lot of ground in that book, more ground than we can cover in two hours. So definitely, definitely go grab a, a copy of that. You will not regret it. And once again, if you're going to be in LA, in the LA area, in the Southern California area for that matter, uh, here in a few weeks, you might want to grab tickets to the Contact in the Desert and check it out. It's probably one of the coolest conferences that we get to attend. Some really neat stuff. A little bit for everyone, uh, depending what you're into. If you're into the aliens, UFOs, ancient technology, ancient knowledge, believe me, Contact in the Desert is the place to be. That's happening June 1st through the 4th. Go to contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets. That being said, as always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. And don't forget to check out the website, WOTRRadio.com. You'll find this interview in the next coming days, along with another bunch of uh, cool stuff there to keep you entertained. I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Catch her here every Thursday, 9 p. Or, sorry, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. 
Pacific time, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. Definitely a good time for all. All right, guys, we're going to go out with, man, I was so into the conversation. I didn't even get a chance to look over what, what's some good stuff to play here. Why don't we go out with some MDFMK, which was the uh, KMFDM band that for a while had to change their names, I believe, due to some legal reasons. I don't know all the details. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's annoying because it, it just made it even more confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, uh, this is a song from one of my favorite soundtracks. This is from the Heavy Metal 2000 soundtrack. Uh, the movie was great too, don't get me wrong. But the soundtrack was definitely an A. And uh, this song is called Missing Time by MDFMK. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye-bye. Bye, everyone. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.